This is a Whole Observatory podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Haley Osborne, and today you are listening to a really awesome episode of Star Stuff. Uh, We're focusing on astrobiology today. So today I'm joined by Lowell educator Juan Ruiz. Hello. And uh, the director of the Great Salt Lake Institute at Westminster College, Dr. Bonnie Baxter. Hi. Hi. So um, I'm going to go ahead and read your guys' bios so that everybody can get a background on uh, who you are, what you do, and then um, we'll ask you guys some questions. So, or I'll ask you guys some questions. <laughs> um, so Juan Rees is a public program educator here at Lowell Observatory and a recent intern research associate in the Blue Space Institute of Science's Young Scientist program. He is now a visiting scholar at Blue Marble. His major science interests are in the fields of astrobiology and the origins of life research. These are both interdisciplinary research fields with a global community of researchers from many domains of science, trying to solve some of the hardest questions like how Earth formed in our solar system, how life originated on Earth, and how life and the Earth arrived at their present forms, and more. His work as a research associate was to collect any and all outreach, education, and other engagement materials related to origins of life research and create a global map of it showing how they are connected. And uh, Juan, what was that project titled? Yeah, that project was titled Landscape of Community Engagement Efforts in the Origins of Life Research. And I got a chance to work with some awesome science communicators like Graham Lau and some other IAU communicators. Nice, nice. Well, awesome. Uh, You guys, you have a really cool background. And um, I'll save the questions for just a second because I, of course, have to introduce uh, Dr. Bonnie Baxter. She studies the photobiology of halophiles and microbial diversity of Great Salt Lake with her undergraduate students. She is interested in the astrobiology applications of extremely hypersaline ecosystems, in particular resistance to ultraviolet light and desiccation by halophiles. Recently, her studies have been engaged in projects involving biomolecules in salt, microbial compositions of greater salt lakes. Uh, oh my gosh, I you just told me how to pronounce this word and I already forgot. Oh, right, right. Stromatolites. Yes. That's it. That's it. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Can you tell that I have no astrobiology background? <laughs> um <laughs> And she studies lake microbial mercury uh, methylation. Mm-hmm. I said that one right, though, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, you do. Nice. Awesome. Dr. Baxter is also dedicated to the integration of research in undergraduate science education and to outreach efforts that inspire learning and stewardship. And this is the part that I uh, really love about your your whole bio that I was reading on you. Uh, you're engaged in efforts to support underrepresented groups in STEM fields, which is something yeah. we've talked about quite a few times on this podcast. So we do love that. Awesome. Um, but yeah, so uh, welcome to our podcast, guys. Are you excited to talk about uh, astrobiology? I'm excited Absolutely. to hear what Juan has to say, too. I'm really thrilled. Thank you for having us. Of yeah. course. Can you guys explain what astrobiology is? 
Oh, Juan, you're the communicator. You start first. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. Um, so astrobiology is the study of the origins and evolutions of life, um, both here on Earth and other planets, possibly, just so we can get a better understanding how life originated here on Earth and how life could originate it elsewhere. Yeah, very good. Nice. Um, so, you know, in this field, it, it's highly interdisciplinary. Um, I collaborate with geologists and planetary scientists um, and chemists. And, you know, it, it's it's very, very interdisciplinary. And it it is all about taking all those disciplines of science and applying them to this question about could life be outside of our planet? So I'm hearing aliens. Yes. Uh-oh. Oh, no, 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 no. No, what I'm hearing from your guys' answers is uh, we're about to talk about aliens. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, we are. We should talk about aliens. Indeed. Except for me, the aliens are likely microbial in my mind. Gotcha. Um, Ooh, microbial. That reminds me. I um, mentioned the word halophiles. Those are microbial life forms. Yes. Could you could you give us a little bit more insight into yeah. what those are? Yes. Yes. So halo comes from the Greek root for salt and file is the Greek root for love. So halophiles are literally salt lovers and they are extremophile microbes that live in high salt, especially like saturated salt water. Okay, cool, cool. So in your opinion, if we were to find aliens, they would probably be something along these halophiles or maybe even like tardigrades? (laughs) (laughs) I don't, you know, animals take another jump in evolution. Um, So the, the first question we have to ask outer space is, are there any microbes? And and if we find evidence of microbes, another spot of evidence in our solar system, then we probably have the idea that evolution, or sorry, abiogenesis or the the formation of life um, from from no life has probably happened more than once. And then we have a broader view of the potential for life in the universe. Um, but what we know on our planet is that to go from microorganisms to multicellular animals like a tardigrade took an extra 1.5 billion years. So that's a big ask. Um, the first life forms will, will be microbial in any system, in any origin. And so to ask that question first, I think, is a more responsible science question. Um not that we shouldn't investigate animals that can also handle extremes like tardigrades or, hey, my friendly brine shrimp that live here in Great Salt Lake. Um, I, I think those are reasonable astrobiological models. But um, to be honest, most of the scientists who are studying biology and astrobiology are thinking about microbes. Gotcha. Cool, cool. Yeah, I um, I heard about Jupiter having like water moons like uh jupiter and saturn so like europa and enceladus yes and like i know that astrobiologists are thinking in terms of like oh yeah we might find something like like microbial life there but i want so badly to find space mermaids like i I want that so bad i get it no i get it i think i think (laughs) i would 
I would wake up really happy if that happened too. Um, but the, the phenomenon of chemicals wrapping themselves up into a package that becomes a cell that can reproduce and can reproduce its genetic material, like that emerging from non-life is amazing in itself, right? So I think we need to like get our brains set on just how amazing. If we find in the salts from Mars that we're digging up with the Perseverance rotor, rover right now, if we find microbes in that salt, that will uh-huh. be a phenomenal discovery. It doesn't have to be a mermaid to be phenomenal. I I know, but like, I mean, <laughs> come on. I, I played mermaids growing up, swimming in the pool and everything. So I think that would be great. <laughs> um, Juan, what are your thoughts on aliens? You know, when I always tell the public that I'm interested in astrobiology, the first questions I get asked are, oh, so you're looking for the aliens. And, <laughs> you know, that's fine to like talk and engage in conversations like that, because those are the questions we're all interested in. We've all thought about, are there other life forms like us, or maybe some that don't look like us that are also intelligent. But at the end of the day, the people doing the research, they're interested in the stuff that we can prove. Um, and stuff like what Dr. Bonnie Baxter is doing is, you know, looking for life as we know it, how it yeah. might possibly be on another planet. And that's even more exciting, I think, to even prove that life could be anywhere else other than Earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And think, think Juan about what that means. Like if we find cells of any sort that are on Mars, or even if we find biomolecules that are stuck in the salt from ancient life, and, and then we can compare that to the life here. And then we can ask the question like, well, were there two origins or was this the same origin? And we've shared space rocks between earth and Mars and so somehow we've shared these microorganisms. Um, I, I think you get at just some really cool, uh, astounding questions if if we are able to find another life form in our in our universe. When we're talking about like life starting on earth and uh looking for similar things and everything um how do you guys feel about comet seeding i know that's like one idea as to how maybe life got here on earth uh i know a little bit about this i i've read some of the papers which are not published in very reputable journals um and and haven't really been backed up by some of the science that you would like to see done on this. Um, the, the possibility of comets bringing life, because comets have things like ice water and ammonia, so that's organics. Um, the possibility of comets taking life around our solar system, you know, I think it's a reasonable idea. Um, there's been a lot more work done on meteorites and asteroids that I think um, like the science has been far better on. Um, And we know that, for instance, there are pieces of meteorites 
um, sorry, there are pieces of Mars that have landed as meteorites on our planet. And Mm -hmm. I suspect pieces of Earth that have landed on Mars. So when an asteroid makes a collision into another planet and releases debris um, over time, what happened is that debris, you know, gets pulled into the gravity of another planet. So we have pieces of Mars that have fallen to Earth. Um, I think it's in the 20s, maybe the number of meteorites that we have that have matched up to the crust of Mars. Um, and then we also have pieces of the moon that have fallen as, as meteorites. Then we also have pieces from the Kuiper belt that have fallen on our planet. So I think meteorite studies, like they're, they're more accessible because we find pieces of them on earth. We can do better testing. We can do better science. Um, like we can demonstrate where a meteor came from. And when it landed as a meteorite, you know, what happened to it, the chemistry, we can look for organics inside, we can look at gas vacuoles inside. We can't do any of that with comets. Mm -hmm. So the science is just really lagging. And mostly it's theoretical at this moment. Gotcha. Gotcha. What do you think, Juan? It's really interesting because our understanding of meteorites and asteroids, more so than comets, is developing and we have found instances where there's amino acids on these pieces of space rocks and just recently Mm -hmm. they found one with nucleic acids um the stuff that makes Mm -hmm. up you know the rna and dna so now it's a weather question do those things survive as they're entering Mm -hmm. you know the planet and impact um so it's a really interesting thought it sounds awesome to think like, you know, life is getting seeded by, you know, space rocks everywhere. Um, and that has been a really common um, thought of, you know, the origins of life. But again, how Bonnie said, you know, those are things that are really hard to prove because the evidence isn't really there because it mostly, you know, gets wiped away when asteroids and meteors do hit. Um but yeah, good point. That's, a, good point. that's an interesting yeah. one. And I like the the title of that um, theory. I want to look mm-hmm. it up just to make sure I'm correct. But Panspermia. I'm pretty sure panspermia. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, nice. Francis Crick of DNA fame uh, wrote a paper with another British scientist called Leslie Orgel in the 1970s proposing panspermia as a theory. Um, not that it was his alone, but I just love that Francis Crick wrote that paper. Um, so that's one that I always make my students in astrobiology read. I would um, like to ask, uh, so we're talking about like life starting on Earth and everything. And um, Juan, I think I've heard you talk about this before, so I, I, I would love it if you could explain. Um, the, so from my understanding, it took life three tries to make it on Earth. Um, it like tried a few times and failed. Um, but potentially life elsewhere could have developed when ours didn't. Is that, is that true? Like what, what would a timeline of that look like? Ooh. So I'm not too sure about life trying three times, 
based off of everything that we know, um, mostly off of genetic material, we know that life originates from, you know, one common source, Luca, the last universal common ancestor. Um, and that basically tells us that life only originated once. Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly if there's other Lucas for other planets. Um, and that's like one of the amazing things that would happen if we did find, you know, life in these salt crystals on Mars. Do we share, you know, common um, genetics with life on other planets? But the whole idea that, you know, maybe Mars was habitable before Earth is kind of well known now. Um, There is a lot of more information nowadays saying that, yeah, Mars was once maybe an Earth-like planet. Um, Maybe even Venus as well. Um, So while, you know, Earth was still a giant ball of molten mass getting impacted it might have been possible that life on venus and life on mars was already well underway um so that's one of the really exciting things about astrobiology that i think would be cool well, to and the time out. and the timeline question you know what you're pointing to Juan. um so if 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 there was life on Mars, we know there was water now from all of this incredible geology that the rovers and scientists have done. Um, so, so we know there was water on the surface and about 3.5 billion years ago, that's when life is erupting on earth. And at that time, Mars would have been, would have had as Juan is saying habitable conditions. And so could life have also evolved there? The chemistry is right. The temperature would have been right. Um, They're in the habitable zone. Everything is good. Um, But then shortly thereafter, the, um, the magnetic poles on Mars shifted and Mars went through this like catastrophic climatic change, like around the entire planet. And, Uh, over time, not very much time, it lost surface water and it became a very different place. It didn't have the thick atmosphere that it had before, which, you know, rivaled Earth's. And so that's one of the reasons we don't expect to find giraffes on Mars because (laughs) there there wasn't enough time to evolve animals, but there was enough time when the conditions were right to have a really robust microbial community in those lakes and rivers around the whole planet. So the, the Perseverance Rover right now is in Jezero Crater, um, which is um, a crater lake essentially. And there's a river Delta coming in and there are minerals in the bottom that happen that, that form when water evaporates. Um, And it looks a lot like, Bonneville Salt Flats right here next to Great Salt Lake. So I'm really excited to see, like, since we know that salt and minerals on Earth can capture life over time, I'm really excited to see what happens when we dig into that. But yeah, we don't expect to find like sharks or, you know, giraffes. We expect to find potentially microorganisms. And that actually uh, leads me to my question uh, next. 
So how does the Great Salt Lake and life we find there give us clues about life on Mars? Yeah, so so in that in that scenario that I just laid out, you have surface water on Mars evaporating as the climate changes. And as that rapid evaporation occurs, the water evaporates, but the salts are left behind. And it's really similar to what happened here at the site of Great Salt Lake. There was an ancient, um, several actually, but the last ancient lake that was in this site was a big freshwater lake called Lake Bonneville. And then it it thawed, the ice dams around it thawed um, and water evaporated after we left the last ice age. And we end up with this little puddle at the bottom that is Great Salt Lake. And what happened? We concentrated all the salts and the minerals into Great Salt Lake that was in that big body of water. So that's what it would have happened on Mars. To a lake, what would have happened was it would have gotten saltier and saltier and saltier as the water evaporated. So if you started out with robust microorganisms everywhere growing, and then the water evaporates, those microorganisms had to evolve to live in salty water over time. And so once it gets to the very final stages of all the water leaving the planet, all those little puddles of water around the planet would have been salty. So that's why I think the last microorganisms on Mars would have been salty and they would have been halophiles. <laughs> and, and they should look, they should do life like our microbes in Great Salt Lake do life. They should have some of the same strategies for balancing, you know, this life in high salt. Gotcha. Cool. Cool. So I'm sorry, I'm like taking this all in. This is all fairly new information to me. So, um, but yeah, so tying into what we were talking about earlier, um, why is it that halophiles love salt and how did they adapt to it? Well, if you asked a halophile, um, they would think that a ridiculous question because they have evolved to live in that system. And so that's just where they thrive. And if you put them in fresh water, they will shrivel up and die. Um, so normally, um, what a, uh, we, we learned this in high school and then we promptly forget it, but there's this word called osmosis that has to do oh, yeah. with uh, in cells and any kind of living cell. So your cells are doing this right now. Water can transfer across membranes. Um, and if you put your uh, the, the cells of say a carrot stick into fresh water, um, what will happen is that there's a little bit of salts and sugars and stuff inside the cells and the cells want to equilibrate that inside and outside. And so they'll let the fresh water like come into the cells of the celery stick and then your celery will get really crunchy. There's this nice turgor pressure that happens with plant cells. So if you were to put your carrot stick in salty water, what happens is the water inside the cells says, oh my God, I must rush out in order to dilute the outside water and make it less salty so that I can make it equal. And so water will leave the cells and go outside and then you'll have a really floppy carrot. Um, so that's exactly um, the principle that we need to understand when we think about halophiles. They have learned to balance 
the inside of their cell with the outside being full of salt. And one way they do that is they like accumulate things that won't harm them inside. Like they accumulate lots of fats and then that makes them um, have stuff inside that balances the stuff outside and it keeps them from rushing their water out and keeps their cells happy. So they've actually evolved these strategies to just live at high salt and they can't do it any other way. Cool. And um, this is actually a question Juan had for you. Um, other than giant size difference, what makes us different from halophiles? Ha! Um, <laughs> well, just because we were just talking about that incredible um, osmosis balancing, you know, that, mm-hmm. that osmotic, the osmotic balancing that halophiles can do. So you can't do that. You know, um, if we if we took some cells from a human, um, some cheek cells, some blood cells, whatever type of cells that you take from a human and we put those into salt water immediately, the water rushes out of your cells to try to equilibrate it. The cells shrivel up and they die. So our cells don't have that ability to balance in salty water. Um, And and so. I think they're a really specialized kind of life form. And all of these extremophiles, they have special talents like this. I, I like to call them superpowers. Um, uh, so, and I mostly know about halophiles, of course. Yeah. But halophiles <laughs> do the coolest things. I mean, they can handle some really strong salts and really different pHs, and they can dry up inside a salt crystal and be totally alive for millions of years. They're, they're just amazing. They're amazing. So they have lots of superpowers that we don't have. Um, as far as I know, we can't survive inside a salt crystal for millions of years. Something that I did want to ask you guys at the beginning, but then we started talking about aliens and obviously that sidetracked me because aliens. Um, <laughs> but Um, So I know a lot of the astronomers that I've talked to in the past, um, their like schooling background starts off more so like on the physics aspects of everything. Um, Does does your guys's schooling start off in like the bio aspects of everything and then you go on to get like an astrobiology uh, degree later? Or uh, could you tell me a bit about like your background and how you got into this? Yeah, Juan, do you want to start that one? Yeah, I can lead off um, as I am the aspiring astrobiologist. So I yes. started <laughs> off with the biology degree. Um, and really, I started college as a pre-med um, major. Kind of oh, wanted to be a medical doctor. Um, but at the back of my mind, I always knew I was a space nerd. Like, that's what I did with my free time. <laughs> I'd go watch, you know, videos about the cosmos and the expanding universe. So. Oh. I kind of made the decision my junior year to just, you know, not do what I was not happy in, meaning medicine. I thought it'd be silly for me to like go to med school. And I was kind of, you know, kicking in dirt, trying to figure out what I'm going to do with a biology degree. And then I came across the NASA's astrobiology page and nice. I immediately fell in love. I knew this is a way that I could, you know, apply all the stuff I have already learned to something that I had already been passionate about since I was a little kid. Um, so 
biology degree, but I also got a chance to do planetary um, research, mostly moon research, looking at the surface of the moon, um, looking at spectrum for past orbital uh, missions. So like how Bonnie was saying, astrobiology is really interdisciplinary. So I'm glad I got the biology side of it and some planetary side of it, but you can go many different ways from here. And that's what I've been trying to figure out as I start to apply to grad schools, whether I want to go down the geology route, the biochem route, you know, you could do the physics route. And yeah, there's a lot of different options. Cool. And also, uh, something about Juan's background that he didn't mention is we actually went to high school together. So before our college careers, we went to the same high school, which, um, I'm just going to throw that in there real quick. But yeah, um, Bonnie, awesome. what about you? <laughs> yeah, so um, I I think that um, I love Juan's answer, especially since um, he has been training since astrobiology was a thing. I'd never heard of astrobiology when um, I went to graduate school, although the first astrobiology program started when NASA started. It was called Exobiology, and it was run by a microbial geneticist um, called Joshua Lederberg, who won the Nobel Prize for some bacterial genetics work. Um, and, and so he was the first biologist to work at NASA and to advise them on issues like bringing um, the potential of bringing bacteria from space back to Earth um, in the Apollo mission, for example. Um, so that was a real concern. Like, what happens if we bring moon bugs back to Earth, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's kind of the beginning of astrobiology. But you couldn't get your PhD in astrobiology until, you know, recent decades. Um, and so I didn't know about it. I, I went to grad school at Chapel Hill uh, University of North Carolina. Um, and I studied genetics. So my degree is in genetics and molecular biology, but I worked with a biochemist. Uh, so he was in the biochemistry department and genetics was an interdisciplinary major. So I really liked chemistry. So I took all of my graduate courses in the department of chemistry. And then I did a postdoc in biochemistry and biophysics. And my uh, mentor actually had a physics background. Um, and then I really wanted to work at a liberal arts college. So I moved to Utah and took this job um, at Westminster College where I could uh, take some of my fun days and hike in the mountains and hike the canyons and play at Great Salt Lake. And then suddenly I took my work out there as well. So I'd been working on um, environmental damage to DNA and how cells fix DNA. And I just thought extremophiles would be ultra cool to ask that question because they live in these really harsh places. So they, they've got to have some really good secrets about how they keep their DNA um, repaired and intact. So that's what got me into Great Salt Lake. I still didn't know about astrobiology. Um, so along the way, um, I start going to meetings where I'm interacting with extremophile microbiologists. And 
I went to a microbiology meeting and there was a session on astrobiology. And I thought, well, this is cool. And so I went to that session and I learned all about it. And then I got invited to speak at a NASA meeting because they were getting interested in extremophiles. And so I did that. So sort of early in my career, I was exposed to it through conferences. And I definitely had an interdisciplinary background. Um, But then I've, in recent years, started playing with geologists. So I've, I have published in a journal called Astrobiology. I have published in Geobiology. I have published in Biochemistry. I have published in Oceanography journals. <laughs> like oh, my, cool. my publication record is like all over the place because I collaborate with people in so many different fields. Um, and everybody is doing some angle of astrobiology. Um, so I, I guess I had a really circuitous different path. And I think you can take any path um, if you're interested in this. And I, I also um, think that there's a secret that people don't know. So I'm going to share this to with Juan um, and your listeners which is you don't have to know everything or be trained in everything, even if it's an interdisciplinary field. The, the secret to working in an interdisciplinary field is collaborating with people who fill in the gaps. I have never had a geology class, um, but I publish in that field because I collaborate with people who are geologists. Um, I, I published in Nature a couple years ago with a physicist. So like you don't, I don't have to speak the language of physics or geology. I can collaborate with people who do. And that is just the most fun thing in the world about astrobiology is there, there, there are just so many different people in so many different fields and they bring different expertise to the same questions. And I love that. I love that about this field is very inspiring. I was like super excited to talk to Juan about his um, his program that he did, uh, this internship that he did. And I wanted to get him in touch with you because you're in this field. So how fun, how fun. I, I know. I'm very excited. So Juan, I want you to show off. Tell us about your project, please. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Just kind of um, piggybacking off of what Bonnie just said. Yeah, mm-hmm. astrobiology is a giant field with so many different people working on so many different things. Mm -hmm. And the real way we make any progress in science is through collaboration. Um, And that was really kind of like the aims of my project that I did with Blue Marble. Uh, Blue Marble is this community of scientists who came together and made a nonprofit science institute. And they do this really awesome summer program for young aspiring astrobiologists, me. Yay. Um, So I had been applying for the last couple years and it's a pretty competitive field because, you know, everyone wants to get involved with it, how cool the science is. Um, But I was finally fortunate enough to get a chance to work with uh, Graham Lau, the director of the program. He's known as the cosmobiologist. I also think he'd be an awesome guest for this podcast. Um, But he's an awesome science communicator. He runs the Astrobio- Ask an Astrobiologist uh, podcast show on NASA. Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. 
And nice. yeah, basically my project this summer was to basically show how everything is connected. So I made this giant framework um, showing you how astronomy, geology, geochemistry, biochemistry, cellular, molecular biology all connects to the questions that we're trying to answer with astrobiology and the origins of life research. Um, but better yet, I took me and the others that were working on this project, two other uh, young scientists who did an awesome job, we found a whole bunch of material out there because the problem is that the stuff is really scattered out there. And it's kind of hard to make those connections. Like how is the astronomy side of it related to biology? So we kind of just took all the resources and the idea is that we're going to make this publicly available. Um, I should have shared this Ooh. with you, Bonnie, before it. Um, I love it. Just so that we can get more people involved and more people collaborating and get even scientists um, to see how their work connects to other scientists work just so we can, you know, spark more collaboration. Oh, I love that. That's wonderful. I really, I like taking a step back and seeing how everything is connected. Um, you know, in science, it it gets pretty niche. And I think that's the biggest problem that everyone has become so specialized in Mm -hmm. a certain subject. And you don't really like talking to the geologist if you're a biologist, but that's, the stigma we need to break because, you know, that's how we're going to make progress in any field in science. Well, and I think even when I was in graduate school or in, po- um, in my postdoc years, I, I do remember, like, it was hard to have conversations with even labs that weren't focused on the same enzyme I was studying, you know, it was like, it was so incredibly, I once went to a conference, the entire week was on nucleases, the enzymes that cut DNA in various functions. And uh, that's all we talked about the whole week is just those enzymes. And so there's not that there weren't geologists in the room or physicists, there weren't even biologists beyond the ones that studied that particular type of enzyme. (laughs) So it is incredibly myopic. And the other thing that I think has happened in the science that I think is changing is scientists used to work in silos in this very competitive way. Um, And I think interdisciplinary fields push the boundaries of that. And I also think um, underrepresented groups in science have different ways of working together. And women brought a lot of this to science, this collaborative idea. Um, oh, yeah. And, and the way that we communicate um, and lots of contributions to changing the mindset also from people of color. I, I think it's really important to notice how the landscape of science is changing as we bring diversity into science in a real way and how positive and collaborative that is. And I think astrobiology is one of the places where I see that play out in just a beautiful way because it's a it's a field that wouldn't survive without collaboration, you know? Yeah, totally. Totally. We um we've talked especially uh we've talked at length especially about like women in STEM fields and everything. And I feel like yeah Um, it's just one of those things where there's so few of us that we've just like banded together, you know, and Mm -hmm. that's created 
this like interdisciplinary um, uh, back and forth between us, which I think is pretty cool. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it's great. And, and also just respecting, I don't know that the, the patriarchal pyramid structure that science used to be where there's, you know, one very famous dude at the top of the pyramid and, you know, maybe he hires a few grad students to work for him. And, um, that model is just not very effective right now that you need yeah. to, you need to be, you know, if you run a lab group, you need to be a family and you need to kind of all work together towards the same mission and you need to reach out and network with other people. And it's much more of like an interconnected web these days. Yeah, totally. And that's why I wanted to get both of you on here. Cause I wanted this to be like a networking opportunity, you know? Yeah, um, so. Absolutely. I'm going to have Juan come and speak in my astrobiology class. Um, cause I'm going to do a virtual component. Ooh. Do it. Yes. <laughs> that would be awesome. I actually, uh, one, I had a question for you. Um, and you kind of touched on this earlier, but, um, what are your plans for your future research? You know, we talked about um, like Bonnie's research, but what what do you hope to hope to do? Uh, see, my biggest problem is that I do want to know it all, um, and <laughs> that kills me. And especially when I, I have to decide what field I really want to contribute, because at the end of the day, yeah. in order to like you know be a scientist, you need to contribute to a field. Um. But that being said, I have been looking at a lot of different programs across the country, um, and mm-hmm. there's more and more programs coming around, which is awesome because even just mm-hmm. two years ago, there was a limited amount of options. Um, yeah. But the plan is graduate school. I'm thinking PhD. Might as well, right? Get the doctor's well. Um But I've been really interested in geochemistry especially how we use isotopes to kind of, you know, learn about Mm -hmm. the evolution of life on earth. Um, But I've been a giant moon nerd ever since (laughs) I worked on my moon project. And Mm -hmm. I want to see if there's some way I can involve, you know, our moon doing research there on the origins of life. Because at the end of the day, the moon is a textbook for the earth and all the events that have happened um so that could give us a good insight to what the conditions might have been on earth um early on so that's kind of what i'm thinking rocks Mm -hmm. biology um tying those in doing like geochemistry type of deal yeah yeah totally awesome well i i know that some programs um you know you you go to a master's and then a PhD, but that was not even an option. Like in my field, that's rarely an option um, in molecular biology and these sort of modern biology fields, you just go straight for a PhD um, because there's not a whole lot you can do with a master's that you couldn't do with a bachelor's. Um, yeah. Uh, but my husband's a geologist and um, with a master's you can do an amazing number of things. You can register as a professional geologist. You can be a consultant. You can, uh, almost everybody at the Utah Geologic Survey, had, they have masters. So um, I think I, this, I mean, I know we're getting into career counseling here, which isn't the podcast, but um, I, hey, I, I mean, think, go for it. <laughs> yeah. I think investigate 
what programs are available before you decide, because um, sometimes a master's sort of helps you figure out um, exactly what you want to do. But oftentimes the first year of your PhD is that anyway. So yeah. It just depends on how the programs are set up in that field. And I know the Astrobiology PhD program at University of Washington, and I think also the one in Arizona, um, I don't think they have a master's. I think you go straight for a PhD. Um, But that would be in Astrobiology. But then you could work in geochemistry within that. Yeah. No, it's crazy to think about, like, the different paths of academia that things do, because, um, Bonnie, I don't know if you've listened to our previous episodes, but I um, did went to grad school Lisa for a bit. Uh-huh. You did? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lisa told me I had to do my homework. Yeah. So I've got the physics background. Um, I'm not even, I didn't even do astronomy or anything, but I love teaching about it and everything. And like in my intro physics courses, it was basically stated in a, or it was phrased in the way uh, that like, you have to get your PhD or else you're a failed physicist, you know, and like you can't do much of anything without a math or with just a master's unless you want to basically be an engineer, you know? So, um, it's cool to hear perspective of the the other sciences, you know, where you guys are coming from the biology and geology. What advice would you give to someone looking to go into your field? So looking to like follow in your footsteps, I guess. Yeah, I think I think there's some really important things to consider and like what drives us as scientists um, are the projects, you know, and so that is an important thing to consider. But um mentors are really, really important and finding good ones are almost as important as, as choosing a field and finding a project. And I think with good mentors, you can really, um, you know, go in any direction you want. And, and so I, I really feel lucky that my training, um, was with really good mentors. And even though I took turns from one thing to another and somehow ended up in Great Salt Lake, uh, which wasn't at all was I trained for in graduate school. Um, I I think even with that circuitous route, um, what allowed me to make those leaps and bounds and turns is that I had people who taught me the way science works and to have enthusiasm for science and to respect my own, um, my own observations and to not question myself. And so I just think mentors are the underrated success story of a good graduate experience. I completely agree. Juan, what about you? It definitely is a daunting task. Um, and I was scared for sure at first. I thought I had no right to be in the field of astrobiology, but mm-hmm. you kind of just kind of trust your gut and you push on forward. Um, but really, at the end of the day, you need to do what like you know you really love and what inspires you to you know work harder and you know contribute to the field. Um, and as someone who is 
still trying to be an astrobiologist, still just network, reach out to the professors that are around you. Because even if they're not doing astrobiology research, their work probably relates to, you know, astrobiology in one way or the other. And Mm -hmm. you're still picking Mm -hmm. up techniques and skills. Um, And that's kind of important, especially like, you know, if you want to contribute to a field like astrobiology. Um, So, yeah, just, you know, talk to the people around you. Uh, Make as many friends as you can um, because, yeah, collaboration is the name of the game for astrobiology. Yeah. Yeah. And conferences, conferences. So good to meet people who are working in the field. Networking. (laughs) It's really, it's really not a lie. It's a good thing to do. Yeah, no, that's uh, honestly one of my favorite questions to ask everybody on the podcast because everybody always has such different answers, you know, like interesting. Yeah, it's it's so cool to hear, you know, because like some people put emphasis like you did on uh, mentors. Some people put emphasis on like um, passion, you know, all kinds of Uh stuff. So uh uh I think it's really cool. We are unfortunately out of time. I would love to continue talking with you guys about all of this because it's all so cool. But um, thank you guys for being on here. And uh, to all our listeners out there, I would like to remind you that we do have a Discord channel and a Twitter where you can see some cool behind the scenes content. And you can also use the hashtag, hashtag AskStarStuff to ask us questions that you might have about life, the universe, and everything. And if people have questions specifically about uh, things that were mentioned in this podcast, do the two of you have ways that they could contact you and possibly ask those questions? Sure. Um, my email is bbaxter at westminstercollege.edu. I'd love to hear from people. Awesome. Ooh. Um, I don't know how qualified I am to you know answer the questions, but I'm on Twitter, wanderwees underscore 18. Um, or you can come to Lowell and you can take one of my tours and I'll answer all your questions there too. Nice. I think, nice, that, nice. I think, I think I'm going to do that last one. yeah totally (laughs) cool well thank you guys uh so much for being on here yeah thank you for having us they're really exciting this podcast was made possible by our members and donors if you enjoyed this episode and want to support our nonprofit in making more digital education like this available go to lowell.edu slash donate thanks for listening